Hello, and welcome to the Van Life Lab podcast, where we're all about exploring the trials and joys of van life. I'm Colby, joined today by my co-hosts, Eric and Kayla. Today, we're here to talk to you all about van life in Central America and Mexico along the Pan Am Highway. I'm coming to you today from Vail. Eric and I are house-sitting a really adorable little husky um, in the powder-filled town of Vail. Kayla, where are you coming to us today from? Yeah, I am coming to you from the town of Santiago Atitlan along the shores of Lake Atitlan in Guatemala. Your Spanish is probably greatly improving down there. Yes, it is getting better very quickly. Um, Before we dig into the good stuff, we want to ask you guys to give this brand new Van Life podcast a thumbs up, five star rating, and honest review wherever you listen to this podcast. And of course, subscribe if you haven't already. Um, We've got a lot of things coming about the trials and joys of Van Life. We would love your feedback as we continue to grow this podcast. So if you guys have been listening, you know that Kayla has embarked on the journey across the whole Pan Am Highway. Um, So she's got a lot of info on this. And today we want to focus more on the Central American side of that, which is going to be the countries of Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama. So a lot to dig into there. Um, Let's first start with, I guess, um, maybe border tips. Um, I know Eric and I are heading into Mexico soon. So we would love to know where to start. Yeah, I uh, borders are the logical place to start for this. And I think we'll, we'll start with a very brief reminder there. The Pan American Highway was kind of originally cooked up as an idea, idea from U.S. politicians and businessmen who were hoping to create the Pan American Railway to kind of produce, uh, to boost commerce and um all those sorts of, you know, colonialism and those sorts of things throughout all of the Americas. It's never really been fully completed. And there are a couple different um, kind of approved routes of the Pan American Highway throughout various countries. But essentially, it is considered the longest stretch of highway in the world, um, with one big notable gap between Panama and Colombia. So just really, really, really long highway. um, I think something like Route 66, but international. So as far as border trips go, essentially every border process is the same. It just looks a little bit different at each border. So at each border, what you need to do is you need to first check out of the country that you're leaving. That may include both checking out um, yourself and your vehicle. So that'll be immigration and customs, or in Spanish, migración y aduana. Once you've done that, this is always the part when I am crossing in between two different non-U.S. countries. I always do those first two steps and I'm like, wow, this border is going so smoothly. This was so easy. Um, And then I hit the next steps because the first steps are just leaving that first country. So that's just to make sure that you properly exited your first country. Um, And that's because in some countries, what you need to do, you need to cancel your insurance. You need to kind of get a stamp saying that you did exit within the approved amount of time and all those sorts of things. So that can actually help make sure that you re-enter that country properly later on if necessary. Um, Because some countries, for example, you might only be allowed to be in there for 90 days. So you need to make sure you get your stamp out that proves that you left after 90 days. Okay. Quick question on (laughs) this. So is this just 
countries not in the U.S. Like when we leave the U.S., we don't have to go to immigrations and customs. We can just skip this step or... Yeah, correct. So this is, um, I think I'm going to try to go through like generally what that it goes, what it looks like. And then I'll circle back to the U S Mexico border because it is a little bit different. And when we do our Arctic portion of the Pan Am as well, we'll talk about the U S Canada border because that's also a little bit different. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So (laughs) first up first, uh, you know, first things, immigration and customs, again, that's migración y aduana. If you're in Spanish, um, to leave whichever country you're coming from. Then next up, you need to go through migra- immigration, migración, to enter the next country. Usually that step is pretty easy. Usually pretty much all you need is your passport, maybe copies of your COVID vaccine. Um, if you're bringing a vehicle in, they may want to see your license. In some countries, they want photocopies. So when I am doing the Pan Am, I have a three-ring binder with plastic page protectors with photocopies of every single one of my documents because you just never really know. Um, which border may end up asking you for photocopies of which document. So I just always kind of have photocopies of everything with me at all times. And I just have my like trusty dust, trusty border binder. Um, so what is everything? Your yeah. passport, your, your license? Yes. Anything else? COVID. Okay. COVID tests. Yeah. It's going to be passport, license, COVID tests. Then it's going to be title and registration for your vehicle. Um, and then anything for your pets. So for my pets, I have copies of their vaccination records and copies of their, um, customs like export paperwork, which you do have to do for each country. And we'll, we'll talk about that separately. Um, cause it's a headache. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think what else. No, I think that's, that's pretty much it. Um, in that, in that binder. And then you also will get various paperwork at various borders, Um, and you always want to make sure you keep that. So some borders, they will give you like literally when you enter Guatemala from Mexico, I got a postage stamp sized receipt from the bank when I paid, um, an import fee and I needed to make sure that I kept that to show it at another kiosk later on in the border. So I also just have a sleeve in that binder for like every single little tiny receipt. Um, yeah. (laughs) So once you've gone through immigration, then your next step is usually going to be customs. So that's where you're going to go and you're going to show up with your vehicle paperwork. Um, us titles usually confuse central American authorities because your title won't have your, um, your plate number on it. Um, because you get your, you, your plate number comes after you've kind of fully purchased the vehicle and your title happens before that. So you also need to make sure you've got your registration on you. And then usually I have to point out or even sometimes circle my plate number on my registration for the officials. Depending on the country, there will be a fee associated with importing your vehicle. Um, and you need to make sure you, that you get some sort of temporary vehicle import permit. Um, in Mexico, this is called a TIP, a TIP. Um, in most other countries, uh, it, it's just your import paperwork. They call it something different in each country, which is a little bit annoying. But you just need to make sure that you do pass through Aduana and you do get that paperwork. If you have not done that, you have not fully legally imported your vehicle. And that can be a really, really big problem for you later on. This is especially easy to do on the U.S.-Mexico border because of um, because of NAFTA. So if you aren't going past like the first hundred miles or so of the U S Mexico border, you don't have to do this. So when you're crossing the U S into Mexico, it's really easy to accidentally not get your TIP, which you do need later on. So do make sure that when you are crossing into Mexico, you stop, you talk to Aduana, you get your TIP. 
but that's only if you're going more than a hundred miles into Mexico. To my understanding, yes. Um, but I would fact check me on that if uh, before before going ahead and not getting it done. Okay, I think we're going. I know we're actually going six hours, which I assume is more than yeah. 100 miles. We'll probably need that anyway. And if I remember right, and again, you want to fact check me on this, the entirety of Baja actually counts for this. So you might not need a TIP for the entirety of Baja, but it just takes an extra little bit of time at the border and is probably worth doing anyway, because even even if you might not technically need it, some it, you just kind of want to make sure you've got all your I's dotted and your T's crossed to make sure there's no reason for anyone to hassle you over anything. So it's probably worth doing. And in Mexico, this TIP doesn't cost you anything. You will have to pay, I think it was $360 for me, but you get that back when you legally exit the country. Um, huh, so it's like a deposit. It's okay. a deposit, yeah. So, yeah. okay. and the process at both Mexico and Guatemalan borders is a little bit weird and a little bit annoying. Just, I think this is a good thing to be aware of for this. Um, you will have to like, Go to one window, get a receipt, show them your paperwork, et cetera. Then you actually go to another window. You go to the Banjercito in Mexico. And then in Guatemala, it's the whatever the name of their national bank is. And that's where you pay. Then you get another receipt or a stamp and you go back to the first window. And that's kind of an anti-corruption measure. So you're never actually handing your money over to the customs or immigration officials. It's always going directly to the bank. But... It throws people off at first because it feels like a lot of really weird steps. It feels like corruption. It feels really weird, but that's actually how it's supposed to go for particularly U.S. and or the U.S. Mexico and the Mexico Guatemala borders. So I've got to ask. So I know that you speak pretty. You speak really well, span really good Spanish. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I speak English over here. Do you think this like so for somebody like? Well, actually, Eric speaks really good Spanish, too. But, like, someone like me who just has, like, the basics, would I be able to figure this out via the signs at these borders? Or, like, do you recommend having good Spanish-speaking skills to do this? It, it, I'm not going to lie. It's definitely a lot easier speaking great Spanish. Um, okay. That said, plenty of people do this without speaking very good Spanish. Um the big thing that you're going to struggle with if you don't don't speak good Spanish is trying to fend off the border helpers who want to charge you through yeah. the nose to help you through the border. They can be mm. genuinely really helpful. I have used them in the past, and I've been very happy with them a couple times in the past. I've also felt like I got totally screwed over with them in the past. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so What is a border helper? I've never heard of it. Yeah. So these are basically uh, generally kind of young-ish to middle-aged men who are going to be hanging out at the border. And as soon as you pull up to a lot of borders, they're not as prolific at the U.S.-Mexico border, but a lot of other borders, they'll basically show up right away and say, hey, are you going, you know, are you going to immigration? My friend, my friend, you have copies, you know, like, and they often speak kind of broken to decent English and are really yeah. very eager to help you through the border. Um, and then they'll, they'll, they'll charge you at the end. <laughs> um, and again, sometimes mm. they're genuinely very helpful and I've been very glad to use them. And other times I've felt like I was kind of forced into accepting help from them and then asked for a really exorbitant fee. Um, yeah. So fending them off can be okay. a little bit challenging, especially also, honestly, as like a young woman, it just, it's you have to be pretty stern with them. Um, and that can be just challenging, um, socially to, to handle. Um, but yeah, as someone who doesn't speak great Spanish, I think the big thing is generally I kind of walk up to 
the window knowing, okay, so I'm at the immigration window. They're going to want my passport. So I just kind of start handing them documents until they tell me that they've got enough um, or that they don't want something. And I do that even as someone who speaks really, really good Spanish, because a lot of times there's a window in the way. Sometimes people are masking. It's loud. Even speaking really good Spanish, I get pretty confused and can't hear people well at borders pretty often. Yeah, I actually think that's a pretty good technique, too. I feel like it's kind of the the fake it till you make it thing, too. Like, if you, like, walk up there looking like you know what they need, like, people probably are going to be like, do you need help? Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, again, just having those copies ready, um, ready to go is such a big thing. And I will say... Again, and I've actually, so on Journey Dog Training, I've been writing up like full border reports for each border I've been doing. So we'll link some of those in the show notes because I'm not going to go through the step-by-step for every single border. But for example, when we were exiting El Salvador into Guatemala last week, they wanted a photocopy of my exit stamp from El Salvador, which obviously I could not get until I had entered the border, exited El Salvador, and then you have to like go out to a copy shop that's at a kiosk right near the border area, get a photocopy of the mm. exit stamp, and then re-enter the border area and show that to the agents to get into Guatemala. So sometimes there's just really mundane, ridiculous bureaucracy like that, and sometimes it's literally impossible to show up to the border perfectly prepared because I can't yeah. have my exit stamp until I've entered the border area. That's not something I could do the night before. Huh. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I will say also, so I've got those resources on Journey Dog Training. Then also Wiki Overland is an amazing resource for all of this sort of stuff. Um, I personally have been trying to go through and updating it um every border I cross to make sure it's up to date because some of the stuff on there is like from 2014, so not necessarily perfectly accurate. And some stuff is also from kind of peak COVID when it talks a lot about PCR tests and those sorts of things, which are no longer relevant so far for any of the countries. I've crossed in 2022, 2023, which I've made it as far as Costa Rica so far without having to do a PCR test. It was Wiki Overlander, you said? Yeah, Wiki Overland. Um, And then as most people are probably aware, the iOverlander app can be helpful. You can actually click directly on the, there will be a little pin for the border buildings. Um, And that'll, that'll kind of give you some information on anything else that you need to bring or have with you. Um, Some countries require that you have insurance. Many of those countries, if they require that you have insurance, there should be insurance available for sale at the border. There used to be insurance available, like vehicle insurance available that you could purchase for all of Central America. Unfortunately, it no longer exists. So um, for Nicaragua and Costa Rica, you purchase your insurance at the border. For Mexico, I was able to purchase my insurance online before I went. And then for Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, um, I was told by a border official that God is my insurance. And um, that was pretty much as as good as it gets here. So um, just drive careful. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I actually didn't even process like our American health or not health insurance. Auto insurance. Auto insurance is probably void down there. Yes. Huh? Did you pause yours or? Yeah. Well, I've, I've gone, I'm going to be gone for long enough that I just full on canceled mine. Okay. I think for five days, we probably will just add on the we'll Mexico. We'll just eat it. Yeah. Oh, we'll just eat it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. For five days, I would probably just eat it. And honestly, the thing I will say is like body work down here is so cheap that I, I have not been as stressed as I expected to be by not having insurance. So, for example, my radiator blew up when I was in Guatemala, um, and it 
cost me $20 to have three people do five hours of work to install a new radiator for me in Nicaragua. No. $20. No I tried to get, I tried to make lunch for them as well and they wouldn't accept it because I think my tortillas looked really gross. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but yeah, like body work down That's here so is so cheap that most of the stuff your insurance covers, um, it's not a big deal if you do have to cover it out of pocket. Obviously, there are huge exceptions to that, and it does not make me feel good to imagine having a rollover crash and not having insurance. Um, but for most most accidents, it honestly wouldn't be the hugest deal to just have to cover it out of pocket. Okay, that's, that's a good point. Um, I'm curious, so... I think you gave really good info like on borders generally. Have you found that like weekends or weekdays or mornings or evenings are better or is it just kind of always going to take some time? Um, I found some kind of randomly good times to go, but generally the rule of thumb is to go right away in the morning because, so I found going kind of mid to late morning can be maybe the worst time because that's about when most of the Chicken buses, kind of public transport is going to be showing up. And if the border mm. takes you to to f two or three hours, which is about average for most um, uh, most of these land borders in Central America, you are likely to hit people's lunch hours. So showing up at 10 a.m. can be a really big bummer if, you know, then for your like very last step, you get to the window at 1215 and the, the person has just disappeared for their lunch hour. Um, totally. Yeah, because they okay. will just kind of leave, like the windows just end up being fully unattended. Um, they don't necessarily have like shift uh, oh. lunches <laughs> set up. Um, I also would generally really strongly recommend avoiding um, holidays. So like Semana Santa or right around Christmas um, would definitely mm -hmm. avoid those. The worst border crossing I've ever had in my life was on New Year's Eve between Nicaragua and Honduras. There's just a, t or not New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve. Um, and that border took me five hours. My average border is about wow. two hours and that took me five. So yeah, definitely avoid holidays. We also had really good luck though on like a Friday afternoon last week, which I thought was going to be horrible. Um, huh, you know, yeah. we crossed uh, from Guatemala, for, from El Salvador into Guatemala. Uh, on Friday afternoon and it, it took us like two hours and 15 minutes which is very very average very typical and the only thing that really slowed us down was um, uh, we did <laughs> we did have a random thing where we got to the bank to pay our last couple fees for for the border and the bank was closed down for someone's break um, and we just had to wait like 45 minutes for that oh my gosh <laughs> okay the the bank now has me thinking is this all and again naive question is this all cash like what is it? Pesos? Yes. Great question. Um, so yeah, you most, most borders, I try to make sure I go in with at least a hundred dollars of cash on hand. Is that American like conversion of American yes. US dollars? Yeah. So, but the nice thing is every single border in Central America, at least so far, again, I have not yet done land borders in South America. So not speaking to those quite okay. yet. In Central America, there are always people wandering around at the borders with giant stacks of cash in their hands who will change your cash for you. Um, it's a good idea to double check their math before you go up. So if you know you've got 250 in USD in your hand, you know, double check roughly what that should be. Um, okay. But they will take a little bit off the top. You know, it's their job. So recently when I changed, I changed about $200 over... I think this was the Nicaragua-Honduras border. And I calculated um, before I went up to the guy and he took $4 off the top. 
Um, oh my gosh. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, it's a good idea to double check just to make sure they're not yeah. totally gouging you. Um, but you know, do expect them to take a little bit. So I wouldn't worry too much about making sure you've got the right conversion on hand, but I would make sure you've got okay. sufficient cash on hand. Um, so for example, okay. at the Eagle Pass border exiting, um, Eagle Pass Piedras Negras, which is just outside Laredo, Texas, if I'm remembering everything correctly, you need four U.S. dollars to leave the U.S. And I didn't have I didn't have any cash on me. I don't know what I was thinking. I think I was thinking that I would be able to pay with everything with card. And then when I got into Mexico, I'd be able to go to an ATM and just get all my pesos out. And I ended up mm. eating like almost a full hour of border time because I was going back and forth to the ATM. Um, to, to get enough cash out to cross the border. Some of the bigger things. So like when I said crossing into Mexico, you need to get that TIP and that was 300 and some dollars. You're able to pay with card with that. So some borders do accept card, but it's a good idea to just make sure you've got plenty of cash on hand. Any final notes on border crossings before we maybe get into the actual (laughs) Pan Am highway? I just, you know, really try to find the nice quiet place in your brain know it's going to eat up half your day, know there's going to be like dumb mistakes and dumb back and forth and like nothing is well labeled. It's always going to be confusing about which window you need to go to next. And like, that's part of the process. Just enjoy the ride, giggle at the bureaucracy. Um, It's fine. You'll get there when you get there. Um, It's like they're long. It's a headache. Um, I did have one last thing. Oh, the last, I guess the last little tip is don't leave a window until you have one confirmed that you've got all your original documents back, because sometimes you have to hand over both a title and your original title and the copy of your title. Make sure you get your original back before you walk away Two, um, make sure that they give you, they'll give you the little, like you're out signal from baseball when you're fully done at the window and I will not walk away from a border kiosk window until they have given me that signal. So sometimes I hold up the line. Sometimes it's a bit annoying, but I make sure that I've like made full eye contact with that border agent. And I am sure that I am ready to walk away before I leave that window because you don't want to have to get back in line. So on the topic of borders in general, before you cross a border, is there anything you make sure you like stock up on in one country or that you make sure you don't have to carry into the next? Great question. Obviously anything illegal. (laughs) Um, you know, I know, uh, I made sure to smoke all of my weed before I left the state of Colorado, you know, not going to bring that into Mexico. Definitely a big goal to not see the inside of any prisons in any of these countries. Then beyond that, the big thing to know between the U S and Panama, at least, is that you are not allowed to bring drones into the country of Nicaragua. Whoa. Yeah, not at all. It doesn't matter if you're going to fly them or not. It doesn't matter. It, it does not matter. You are not allowed to bring them into the country of Nicaragua. So what a lot of people do is they will coordinate ahead of time with a hostel or something similar in Costa Rica, and they will ship their drone from uh, Honduras to Costa Rica via like DHL. Is it the actual drone that's illegal to have in the country or just to bring it across the border. It is the drone. Um, you're not allowed to have it at all. Um, I will say what I have personally done is fully dismantled my drone into like 10 different parts and hidden each part in a different component of my vehicle where it could kind of feasibly 
fit. So like I put my controller in with all my computer stuff so I could say that it was a video game controller. I put the drone itself inside my jump kit for the vehicle. I put all the batteries in my camera bag along with all of my other electronic battery things. Um, and they will search your vehicle at some borders. Nicaragua is the main border I've been searched at, although I did have um, officials kind of poke their heads in my vehicle at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, but they do not tend to do thorough searches. So I am not saying that that is what should be done. And to all Nicaraguan border officials, I will never, ever do that again. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I know that that is how some people have gotten across the Nicaragua border with drones. And just do not fly it in Nicaragua. But if you just need to kind of get it across to Costa Rica, um, that is a potential option. Although I do know people who have tried that and had their drones um, confiscated. I recently heard that because of the the current egg crisis <clears throat> going on, that egg you can't bring eggs from Mexico back into the U.S. Oh, um, do you know if there are like produce and agricultural restrictions that people might be aware of? I mean, when you cross into California, they do an agricultural inspection. You can't bring fresh fruits, and do you know anything? Generally, no. Um... Generally, I try not to have a lot of fresh produce on me just in case it turns into an issue. Um, but the big signage I've seen at most borders has been around um, pigs. Um, there's an African swine flu that a lot of Central American pig farmers are really worried about. So as long as you don't have like live pigs with you or like fresh pork, it shouldn't be a big deal. Um, I've not had anyone at any of these borders yet ask me if I have oranges with me or anything like that. So, yeah, and then as far as things to stock up on, I don't really have anything that I would particularly stock up on from one country to the other between El, like between El Salvador and Honduras or anything like that. Um, if you did a lot of research, you may be able to find something that is worth doing that with, but personally, that hasn't been a concern for me. Um, I would say if you're someone who likes peanut butter or um, like dehydrated veggie um, meat replacement or anything like that, those would be good things to get in the U.S. because they are very hard to find or very expensive in Central America. Um, so like I have a giant, giant jar of peanut butter that I've been working through this whole time and a giant bag of dehydrated veggie protein that I'll add to some of my homemade burritos throughout this trip. Um, but otherwise, not a whole lot from the U.S. Whenever people visit me from the U.S., I ask them to bring me a box of Annie's mac and cheese and some homemade cookies because um, baked goods tend to be pretty lacking down here. But otherwise, I haven't really found much that is super important to have from one border to the other or one country to the other. It's not like, oh, my gosh, the <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's not like there's there's much that is like super prolific and super easy to find in Honduras that you can't find in Nicaragua that isn't perishable or something like that. Yeah, I feel like what I see a lot, um, at least on Instagram, as we're prepping to, to cross into Mexico for a bit Um Apparently, it's really hard to find vegan food down there. So a lot of people have in their like top three things to stock up on before you go to Baja is apparently vegan food. But I have a feeling that's going to quickly um, get better. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, vegan food, if you really if, like or if you're like celiac or gluten free or something, you may want to stock up on, you know, your fancy flowers and those sorts of things. Um Personally, what I do, so I've been vegetarian since 2010, and personally, I've always been pretty flexitarian when I'm traveling um, because I would rather eat out. 
um, and enjoy the local food, um, then stick to a really strict vegetarian diet. But that is a very personal choice. Um, but that, that's been what I have suggested to most of my vegetarian visitors, um, as well. That's actually a really great point. Um, I feel like as someone who can't eat gluten, I usually feel pretty safe when I go out for Mexican food in America, but it might be good to learn like the common words and potentially have spare food um, that I know I can eat if I'm unsure. Yeah. Luckily in Mexico, most stuff is most, stuff, it, you know, it's rice and corn pretty heavily. I will exactly. also say, so my ex-boyfriend was allergic to peanuts and would occasionally would ask if there were peanuts in dishes and occasionally was told no. And that would not necessarily be true. Um, there mm. just is a little bit less concern or awareness, um, or maybe kind of cultural understanding of some of these things. So even like trying to explain to someone that you're vegetarian, if you say you don't eat meat, they will then like carne, they will then be like, Oh, so, so chicken is okay. Um, so like there, there are some kind of like funny things like that, where you do have to, again, as a vegetarian, you might have to explain, no, 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 no. I don't eat chicken or fish or beef or pork, like none of it. And then usually people will kind of get it from there, but it's just not a typical thing. Yeah. And I think probably like the, at least what I've learned with my international travels is kind of like what you said earlier. Like you kind of got to be a little bit flexible in these other countries, especially if, you know, cultural differences and language differences and things, if it's possible to be flexible, it's, it's usually a good bet. Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say that to someone who's like (laughs) allergic to peanuts, just be like, no, it's fine. Just enjoy the mole. Like, (laughs) no, don't get yourself killed. Um, But if you can, and if you're comfortable with it, I would definitely, um, I would definitely suggest that to people. Like I'm, I'm a pretty strict vegetarian when I'm in the U S and pretty flexible yeah. when I'm in Central America. Cause it's just, especially as, you know, especially as van lifers, like if you've got an eight hour driving day and you want to be able to stop anywhere along your way, like at least, yeah, uh, it's just, it, it, unless you're always cooking for yourself, um, and not enjoying any of the local cuisine, it can be really, really hard, um, to find mm-hmm. like these little corner side places, or you're going to end up eating a lot of like, you know, you're, you're going to be like in Mexico eating um, uh, papas fritas the whole time. You know, like you're just going to be eating like French yeah. fries. And it's like, I don't know, man. Like, again, it's a personal preference thing. But I personally would choose to eat the chicken in that situation and enjoy like a really good local meal rather than being strict about my vegetarianism and having a meal of French fries. <laughs> I do love a good meal of french fries, but I, I agree. Like, food is an excellent way to, like, experience a culture any any day. Totally. And, like, again, what I personally have done is I'm just most flexible on seafood. Um, And then okay. if need be, I'll eat chicken. And I'm still pretty strict on not eating beef or pork. Um, Although in a yeah. pinch, I've gone for it. You know, I, like, I, I think figure out what works for you. Anyway, that's probably enough about food. Totally. Yeah, I know. I feel like Ooh, anyone can talk no. about food. Last before. thing about food, though. Uh-oh. Um, This is maybe something that most people should know, but like especially in Mexico, be really cautious of raw veggies, Um, which is mm. hard because a lot of times like the food that you get at restaurants or even out to eat can be a little bit challenging to get as much fresh fruits and veggies as you would like. Um, But most of the food poisoning I've gotten in my life has been from eating side salads in Mexico. 
Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Okay. People tend to be worried about the ceviche. They tend to be worried about the street food. Um, every time I've gotten sick in Central America, it has been um, the most likely culprit has been a side salad. Um, so I would what I generally do is I eat most of my fruits and veggies at home. Um, and when I'm out, I'm just aware of the fact that I'm, I, you know, you're just not going to get as much fruits and veggies as you might be used to in the U.S. Okay. And when you say at home, you mean like you'll buy them and then just scrub them really well in your van? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, and on that note, it's also pretty typical in Central America to have groceries take a couple different stops. You you might go to a fruteria okay. um, to pick up your fruits and veggies and you might have to go somewhere else, like one of these little tiendas that often have like gates in the front. So they look closed. Like it'll be like a gated window and you actually walk up to that gated window as someone from the U.S. with social anxiety. This is very hard. And then you ask them oh. for what you need. And they will give you things like tortillas and beans in a pouch, which are super delicious, um, and you know whatever else you need. But you often, for grocery shopping, expect it to be the sort of thing that takes multiple stops. You're not going to get a lot of like King Supers or Safeway sorts of like mega grocery stores in um, Central America. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, I feel like it, the gate thing would turn me away. Totally, really it really looks like they're closed. <laughs> a lot of times, you also have to kind yeah. of like walk up and be like "Buenas, Buenas," until like <laughs> usually some like <laughs> shirtless eight-year-old boy wanders up and then starts yelling for his oh. mom, and then she'll come and she'll be very nice and she'll give you everything you need. Um, <laughs> oh. But it's it, it, that's like very very typical for these um, these little tiny Whoa. tiendas, and I try to pa- like personally, I try to patronize them anyway. Um, rather than going to the big grocery stores, because a lot of times these are like, it's the front room in someone's house. Um, so you're really like kind of engaging with the local community and, uh, supporting the local economy a little bit more versus like trying super hard to track down a normal grocery store. Okay. Oh, I love that actually. Okay. We're going to hard pivot away from food because (laughs) one of the things (laughs) mostly because we could keep going forever, Um, I am curious. So from someone who works a nine to five, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about SIM cards and cell phones and like how you deal with that going country to country. Um, and even just like in general, how signal has been down there for you or do you have Starlink or what's, yeah, I do not have Starlink. I would get it if its coverage was more consistently good kind of South of Mexico, Um, but it's not as of yet, as far as I understand it. Um, so it wasn't worth it for me quite yet. Um, so what I did up until this week was that I had Google Fi, which will work flawlessly, um, for international, um, for international work for about three months. Um, Hmm. so that will cover its unlimited data and text. Um, and then calls back to the U S will cost you a little bit. Um, but Google Fi was awesome. I really, really enjoyed it. But again, it's only for three months. And then if you're not going back to the U S after three months, they will boot you. So I just this week had to switch over. I now have Google voice to maintain my same U S phone number that I've had since I was like 14. Cause I don't want to have to deal with having to change that over. Um, and that also allows me to do two factor authentication, which is really, really important. Um, yeah. yeah, Cause when I was in Kenya earlier in 2022, I did not have Google voice set up. So if I needed two factor authentication for any of my accounts, I just couldn't get into them until I got back to the U S um, which was a real bummer for seven weeks. 
Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah. So now what I'm doing is Google Voice for my US number. I can just log on on my computer, on my phone to the app and get whatever text I need. And then I have a local Claro SIM. Um, You can get these SIM cards for a dollar at pretty much any corner store in most of these countries. Um, And then just get them set up. They're all track phones, so they're just pay as you go. The one that I just got this week had seven gigs of data for the next two weeks. And then after that, I'll have to re-up it. And then it, okay. as long as I keep it charged, it's unlimited WhatsApp, Facebook, and Facebook Messenger. They don't charge for those things because Meta is taking over okay. the world. Um, yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, which is great for WhatsApp. Um, very, very pleased with that for WhatsApp. Um, so that has been working pretty well. I have not yet done a lot of video calls off my Claro SIM, but I had really good luck off my Google Fi. Last time I traveled in Central America, I used T-Mobile, which has unlimited data and international coverage. That's what my friend Tony is using here. She's been here for about two weeks and is really enjoying it. She's got really good coverage. Um, so it really kind of depends on what your home network is. If you're on AT or T or Verizon, where it's something like $10 a day for your international coverage, it may be worth switching your SIM cards over for that one or two weeks. Um, but if you're on something like T-Mobile or Google Fi, you probably are going to be perfectly fine using using those instead of switching over to a local SIM. Do you know if for your friend's T-Mobile, um, that was with her default plan? Or did she have to call and like tell T-Mobile that she was going international, kind of like what you do with Verizon? I believe that's just the default plan, if I remember correctly from when I did it. Um, and I guess the last thing to say, maybe not the last thing, I know you might have follow questions, but if you are planning on needing to switch over SIM cards, make sure that your phone is unlocked and will allow that. Um, I had two visitors in December who were planning on doing that and then they got here and realized that maybe because their phones weren't fully paid off or because they hadn't unlocked them, they weren't able to get the Claro SIM to actually work for them. So they were just stuck. Uh, what we did then is because I still had Google Fi with unlimited data and unlimited hotspotting, I would just hotspot over to their phone whenever they needed to use it. That's awesome. Uh, also with crossing the border as somebody who's never I mean, crossed into Mexico, I've heard a lot about uh, police officers being corrupt and uh, asking for bribes. Sometimes they'll like, you know, demand $100 and then you'll just give them like 10. Uh, do you have any advice for maybe how to avoid those situations or what to do if you find yourself in that situation and maybe tie it into just like your personal safety. Yeah, of course. So yeah, this can definitely be definitely be a thing throughout most of Central America and again, maybe South America as well. Um, basically, you know, the first step is to try to keep your nose clean as much as possible. Try not to give them a reason to stop you or a reason to talk to you in any way. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever you can do. Um, one of the most recent bribes, maybe the last bribe I paid in Central America was because I was speeding in Panama. <laughs> Actually, my ex was speeding, um, but I was the one who talked us um, out of a bigger bribe. So, you know, like try to avoid reasons to have interactions with the cops. I, so far, uh, knock on wood, I've been in Central America now for going on f- three months and I have not paid a bribe on this trip. Um, have you been asked? I have been asked. So, um, your kind of two main options when you get, there's kind of three big ish options when you get asked for a bribe. 
So one is to kind of be hyper cooperative. A lot of times they'll try to scare you by saying, oh, if we do this, it's they're going to have to take your passport away. They're going to deport you, la, la, la. So it's better if you just pay me a bribe and we make this disappear. That in the vast majority of cases is not true. So you can kind of play this like hyper cooperative game and be like, okay, great. Yeah, let's go to the police station and we'll get this taken care of. Of course, let's go to the police station. Let's go to the police station. And most of the time they don't want to take you there. They don't want to do the paperwork. And if you just kind Uh of keep insisting that you will go to the police station with them, eventually they will let you go or let you go with like 20 bucks is kind of considered the going rate for most of these bribes. So that's one option. Option number two is to just kind of offer 20 bucks and try to get out of there um, and just kind of insist that that is all you have is usually what works pretty well. So, um, you know, if only one of you brings out your wallet, like, so what Andrew and I, my ex would do is whoever had less cash in their wallet would be the one who kind of pulled their wallet out and showed it to the cop being like, this is literally all the money I have. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that, that kind of works as well as, as well as, as well as many things. Um, you like cash elsewhere in your van to like hide it to, I mean, kind of conveniently have only a certain amount in your wallet at any given time. That would be a really smart thing to do. I personally am not that organized. Um, I think I did that last time and I have just been much lazier about it this time. Um, potentially because I'm traveling as a solo female, it just hasn't been, I, I don't feel like I've been stopped as much as I, as I have been in the la- in the past in Central America. And it might just be because I'm not quite sure why, but anyway, that would be a great idea. I personally am not doing it. And then the third option that has worked astonishing well for me has been to just refuse to pay the bribe. <laughs> so the last time I was asked for a bribe, when you get to, ooh, this is actually another good border crossing tip. When you get to a lot of these borders in tr- Central America, there will be a line of semi trucks backed up, sometimes like miles. These semi trucks often take like days to cross the border, up to five days is what I've heard. I'm sure it can be more in some, ex- you know, bad circumstances. So do not get in line and wait with these semis. That is absolutely not what you are supposed to do. You are supposed to do what looks super illegal and super sketchy. You are supposed to drive in the left-hand lane, you know, into oncoming traffic to pass all of these semis. In some countries, it seems to be the norm to drive all the way over onto the left-hand shoulder. So the cars are actually kind of passing in between you and the semis. And in other countries, it's more the norm for you to hug the semis and the cars to pass on the far left if everyone can picture that. What I generally do is I wait for another car to pass me and then I follow them. So I'm getting whatever the norm in that country is correct, hopefully. Uh So that's kind of, that's a tip we missed earlier. Just absolutely do not wait in line with the semis. You are supposed to pass. It feels sketchy. It feels unsafe. It feels unlegal. It's how it's supposed to go, um, apparently. (laughs) Then the last bribe that I was asked for was because I was doing that at the the Honduras-Nicaragua border, I believe. And there got to a point where the road was so narrow and a semi was so far towards the center line that I actually had to, <laughs> I had to drive up onto the curb in order to get around this semi. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise I would have just had to fully stop and fully block traffic. And as I did that, a cop came up to me. Um, he was on foot and he was like, hey, you're not allowed to do that. It's five bucks. And I looked at him and I looked at the car ahead of me that had just done the exact same thing. And I said, they just did that. And he said, yeah, 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 but, the, but you're different. And I said, no, I'm not. I laughed at him. I told him no. And he laughed, said Merry Christmas and waved me on. 
Um, <laughs> so, and I've asked a couple other people since, and apparently this works quite well, pretty consistently, is to just kind of refuse to pay the bribe. Obviously, that's something that is best done if you feel genuinely safe in the situation. I mostly had the confidence to do that because I was in a border zone and I knew there were a ton of cops and a ton of people around and that it was very unlikely that anything was actually going to happen to me. I would not have pulled like a hard no if it were, you know, nighttime in the middle of nowhere. Um, and that, in that case, I probably would have just paid the 20 bucks and gotten on, gotten on my way. Or go for option one and insist to go to the police station. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that is the one I have not personally yet tried, but I do know a lot of people where that's their go-to response. Usually to me, I'd rather have the extra time uh, and less arguing than have the 20 bucks. I mean, I do feel reassured with these these strategies. It doesn't seem as bad as as maybe I've heard heard others suggest. More manageable. Yeah, I really... <sighs> I think it's a little bit overblown. Um, again, I've been in Central America since November 1. We're recording on January 31st. I That was the only time I've had someone ask me for a bribe on this whole trip. So I, 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 it's not as common and not as prolific as I think people think it is. Yeah, and I think too, like it's uh, an attitude thing, right? Like you didn't snap at him and be like, no, I'm not paying you, like, get out of my way. Like you kind of used humor and like had evidence that someone in front of you did it. Like it's, it's the way you approach it sometimes. Um, that yes, I think would be really helpful down there. Yes, absolutely. Being nice and light and friendly and yes. helpful, um, is really helpful. Like I've found the first couple borders. So the other thing that happens a lot of times at borders is, Within a couple miles after the border, there will be multiple little police checkpoints where they check your papers to make sure you've crossed the border correctly. Very normal hmm. to be expected. These people often are open carrying very large, scary looking guns. Very normal. Um, cool. Yeah, just, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the, it's part of the vibe. Um, the first couple borders, I would get really flustered and be like, cause you know, they'll, they'll come up and they'll be like documentos. Hmm you know, documents. And I would be like, which documents do you want? And feel stressed out by that. And now what I've started doing, and you know, if you're kind of stressed out and you are kind of like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. Then a lot of times they get a little bit frustrated or even will start trying to figure out how to speak to, to you in English, which often can just kind of make the situation feel even weirder because a lot of times their English is really bad. So now like I've kind of turned it into a joke of like, I'll kind of like open my giant binder that's clearly full of like way too many documents and be like, y'all have given me a lot of documents. Which one do you want? <laughs> and kind of be like, I don't know. I've got a lot of paper here. Which paper do you want? You know, and like turn it into yeah. like a little bit of a joke and like people seem to seem to react better yeah. to that. Yeah. I think that's kind of like a good uh, rule of thumb for life too. <laughs> Just be overprepared. Yeah, and friendly and just, you know, we're all just out here trying to live. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, I have one final question and then I want to hear just like some overall highlights and lowlights. But my last question is about um, street dogs down in Central America. And I figured you'd be a good person to ask because you are like a dog and cat pro. So what is the proper etiquette? Um, and actually maybe for people who aren't aware, if you could kind of just talk about what I mean by the street dogs in Central America. 
Yeah. So if I'm remembering the stat correctly, um, and if the stat that I've heard is correct, so those are two big ifs, um, about 80% of the world's population of domestic dogs are free ranging or street dogs. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, so pretty much the moment you cross over into Mexico or whichever other country you're crossing into, you're going to start seeing dogs that are apparently free ranging. Um, those are what we mean by street dogs. Many of these dogs are, some of these dogs are owned. A lot of times those dogs will have collars and they're just kind of, they get to come and go as they please, but they do have their people. They do get fed. They are well cared for. Um, Mm -hmm. Other dogs are kind of more community dogs, so people kind of know who they are, they're around, people kind of like trade off taking care of them, and they're broadly around. And then other dogs are kind of more straight up feral dogs. Um, You're not necessarily going to know which category a dog falls into just by looking at it, but generally if the dog is super duper skinny and super duper scared of you, assume that it's more on the feral end versus if the dog is pudgy and well cared for and you're in a tourist area, that's more of a, uh, more of a either owned dog or a community dog. But again, they all kind of fall into this free ranging dog category. This could be a whole separate episode and I will try to keep it brief. Um, I'm probably not going to do a great job, but I'll, I'll try. Um, my personal ethics with, with these guys is, I mean, there, there are some things that are specific to the fact that I have my own dogs to take care of. So if I have my own mm-hmm. dogs with me, they are my number one concern. And I tend to be pretty, mm-hmm. um, pretty cautious with the street dogs because I don't want any dog fights on my hands. What oh, yeah. I do find in general, if you have your own dog with you and your dog is savvy, um, socially savvy, most street dogs are very socially savvy as well. They have to be. If they were picking fights with other dogs all the time, they would not last very long because no one is taking them to the vet. They can be a lot of uh, holler and bluster with your dog, um, but generally aren't going to actually cause damage um, or actually pick a fight. They might just bark a lot and kind of be uh, rude. Then as far as, you know, should you take these dogs home? Should you try to find a home for them? generally, if you are finding a dog that is friendly and well-socialized and is not kind of clearly covered in ticks and fleas and mange, that dog probably is cared for in some way, shape, or form and is probably better off where it is. Um, That can be really, really hard for us gringos to understand and us Americans to understand because we are so used to the idea that a dog is only safe and happy and comfortable if it is sleeping indoors every night and is getting walked on a six foot leash for 20 minutes a day, every day. But most of these dogs, many of these dogs, maybe not most are actually happier with the amount of freedom and agency that they have as a trade-off for some health issues that they may experience and lack of veterinary care that they may experience. Think of them a little bit more like the street pigeons that you see out in New York City than um, your neighbor's (laughs) golden retriever. Generally, there are cases where there are dogs that do kind of need help. Um, But I generally don't recommend that if you're not a professional, I don't think most people should get involved in that. Personally, if you find a dog that you absolutely fall in love with and you can speak to the community and ensure that dog isn't owned and ensure that that dog is not kind of claimed by someone else and you really want to take that dog home and you're absolutely head over heels in love with it, go for it. The really important thing is to speak to the community, ensure that's something that they're comfortable with and ensure that's something that the dog wants. Because again, I think 
a lot of times yeah. as Americans, we see these dogs and think, oh, they need to be saved. And we take them and we bring them back to the U.S. and we put them in a crate for eight hours a day while we're at work. And then we take them for a couple 20-minute walks every day. And then we put them in the crate again to sleep at night. And these dogs are used to getting to go and have their hobbies and they have their friends yeah. and they do their stuff and they have freedom all day, every day. And it's really, really hard for them to make that adjustment. And I think um, people need to think really really hard about that before bringing home a street dog. So that's probably the broad strokes. Did you have anything else that you wanted me to kind of dive into on street dogs? No, that was a good perspective uh, to offer. I did look up that stat. It was uh, Google said more than 70% of the dogs worldwide are uh, free roaming. So I think you were spot on with well, yeah, uh, about 80%. And I will say potentially if you're, you know, if you, if your heart is really hurting over these street dogs, you know, look into donating to local shelters or veterinarians who are offering spay, neuter, vaccination, deworming sorts of campaigns. You can do a lot more good a lot more quickly by donating $100 to a veterinarian to help them do spay, neuter campaigns or deworming or vaccination campaigns versus bringing home a single dog to keep in your home who may or may not want to live in your house with you because that dog may or may not prefer getting to live in the park and eat chicken scraps. Love that. That's a really good point. Yeah. Great points. But uh, to end the episode, um, I'll ask what Colby alluded to before. Uh, Just highlights of your trip thus far. I mean, spots that are memorable to you. I mean, any any, uh, lowlights you've had along the way. Well, why don't we start with the lowlights so we get to wrap out with the highlights? Um, Yes. Yeah. So, so far the, the major lowlight of my trip has been, I, I think Guatemala might be personally cursed for me. Google Maps is off its rocker in this country. Um, Google Maps is constantly trying to send me down one-way streets the wrong way. Um, My first day in Guatemala, um, my radiator blew up. um, And I I had a crack in my radiator, like the coolant tank, um, and ended up needing to replace my entire radiator. Um, There are more potholes than one could possibly count in this country. And some of the roads are like the main highways through Guatemala are in worse shape than a lot of forest service roads in the U S. Um, wow. Yeah. They're it's, 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 it's stark and it's surprising because even compared to Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Mexico, Belize, Guatemala is markedly worse kind of road quality wise than other neighboring countries that I think, we think of as like similar socioeconomically. So Guatemala has just been really, really trying for me. The first, I spent about three weeks there in November, December and had a really, really tough time here. I mean, it's beautiful. Everywhere I stayed has been great, but I've just had a lot of trouble mechanically here. Um, And just driving is really, really challenging. The drivers are quite aggressive um, and quite unsafe. So it also just driving here feels very stressful because people are constantly passing on blind, blind, curvy, potholy roads. Um, and yeah, it's just, it, driving is very, very stressful here. Um, hmm. So Guatemala has probably been my low light other than the, the Nicaragua borders, both entering and exiting Nicaragua has been pretty horrific both times. And I have to do it one more time before maybe I never, ever cross the Nicaragua land border again. And that's just Nicaragua's government is pretty authoritarian, pretty concerned about um, a lot of 
import export sorts of things. So even though they're part of the CA4 agreement, which is um, the Central American Four, so that's Guatemala, Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador. Border crossings between those four countries are supposed to be pretty easy, but Nicaragua just, they're not. So those have been kind of my lowlights for so far. Um, I did get food poisoning in Mexico as well, um, but there are so many street side pharmacies and corner pharmacies that I was able to get some drugs pretty quickly and the, those cleared me up pretty, pretty well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's a lot of road quality sorts of things. And then trying to find parts, you know, I went to the Mercedes Benz dealer in Guatemala city and there was not a radiator for my vehicle in the entire country. So luckily my friend Betsy was coming to visit me in a couple days or in about a week from, from the point where my radiator blew up. And she was able to bring my radiator as her checked bag. Oh my god! Yep. And then we got That's it crazy. installed. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Uh, I'll, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll send you guys a photo to get that into the show notes because it's hilarious. She like wrote an entire uh, novel on the side of the radiator, begging um, the baggage check people not to squish it um, <laughs> because it would, you know, then I'd be stuck in El Salvador for the rest of my life. Um, oh my god. <laughs> So yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of just international travel, um, kind of bullshit, um, and just kind of crossing different borders and realizing like, oh, this country is different in this way. And now I have to kind of readjust to that. Um, it's challenging from one country to the other. Wow. Yeah, I bet. Um, do you want to hit us with some highlights and this one on a high note? Yeah, no, I would love that. So, um, Funnily enough, I think one of my favorite um, campsites I've had on this entire trip was actually my very first campsite, which was just outside of Monterrey, Mexico. Um, it was up this gorgeous canyon. Um, I will try to dig up the name so we can drop it in the show notes. I'll find the I Overlander link and just put it in the show notes. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was just south of um, Monterrey. And it was just this absolutely stunning, stunning canyon. Um, and I happened to be there when there was a butterfly migration going on. So I was just sitting outside my van watching thousands and thousands of butterflies migrate down this canyon and it was golden light and just, just fabulous. Um, and then funnily enough, actually Semic Champi in Guatemala was another huge highlight, which is just outside of Coban, Guatemala. And this is an area where a river goes underground for a while. So there are there's a giant river, it goes underground, and then it pops back up maybe a half mile downstream. And you can actually kind of walk above this river. And there are all of these beautiful terraces and pools that you can jump off of and you can splash around in and just have the most delightful time above this river. And it's just absolutely beautiful. Whoa. Yeah, very, very cool stuff. And that place is called Semic Champi. Um, and I'm kind of going in chronological order from my trip. So this is not necessarily north-south order. Um, then the next highlight has been surfing in El Salvador. So, um, we got to El Salvador and this entire time I was prepping for this trip, I was like, you know, I'm not really here to find good surf beaches. I don't really care about surfing. I'm mostly here for the <laughs> hiking. And I got to El Salvador and we took a surf lesson and I got in the water and I've surfed three or four times before this, but for whatever reason, something just clicked and I fell in love. Um, and so since then I've bought a surfboard, I'm now dating a surf instructor. Um, it's just been really, really great. Um, so that was in El Sunsal and El Tunco, um, in Guada in, um, in El Salvador. I've kind of honestly fallen in love with the entire country of El Salvador. It feels 
way cool. safer than I expected. Um, and honestly, of the CA4 countries, so again, that's Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, um, it's felt the safest to me. The roads are in really good shape. It's cheap. They use the US dollar. Um, if you're a Bitcoin person, mm. they also use Bitcoin. Um, it's it's just felt really, really good and really, really up and coming. The volcano hikes are also really great in El Salvador. I have a, I've had a really good time in El Salvador, period. Um, gosh, I'm, I feel like I'm just like running through all these stories, but I, I, I can't pick just a couple. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get a couple more out. <laughs> um, okay. Go for uh, it. So one other was, so when Daniel and I, so he's the surf instructor that I'm dating. Um, I took him as far as the Nicaragua border when I was going southbound. So I kind of kidnapped him from El Salvador and took him through Honduras to the Nicaragua border. Um, yeah, he and I went to this little shrimping village on the Pacific coast of Honduras. It is only, so if you kind of go directly from El Salvador to Nicaragua, it's only about a two hour drive. And this okay. stop is about 30 minutes off of the Pan American highway from there down a little bit of a dirt road. It's really not hard to access. And it just is this little road that dead ends into a village that can't have more than a couple hundred people in it. And apparently if you pay for dinner, they let you stay for free. And we had the best shrimp I've had in a very long time there. We went swimming and it, lo and behold, the there was a bioluminescent algae bloom there that night. So we're just like swimming oh in these bioluminescent waters at night and just had like this most magical, lovely, lovely night. And then northbound again. So I'm back in Guatemala right now because I'm on my way to um, Paten, Guatemala for some ecological fieldwork with the dogs. Um, just this week, we hiked Volcan Acantenango, um, which is just outside Antigua, Guatemala. And that is the viewpoint where you can see Volcan, you can see Volcan Fuego erupting. Volcan Fuego is one of the most active volcanoes in Central America, if not in the world. It erupts um, multiple times an hour, probably like every two, three, four, five minutes, um, it seems like. And um, so you hike up Acantenango. It's maybe a four-hour hike up. It is very steep and very dusty. They do not believe in switchbacks here, and volcanic ash sucks to hike through. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then you get up to your base camp. You have dinner. You can watch this volcano erupting into the sunset, and then overnight you get to see the lava flows. And then we woke up for dawn to hike up to the summit of Acantanago and continue watching Fuego erupt, and then hiked back down. And it was just, it was just incredible. Um, I feel like overall Antigua is a little bit overhyped, and I was a little bit over it, pretty ready to leave it by this morning. But that hike is not overhyped and is very worth doing. So those are my uh, my uh, as brief as I can make them highlights of Central America so far. Well, those are some great highlights. It seems like there's so much to do in South and Central America along the Pan Am Highway. Uh, I just want to thank you all for listening today. If you'd like to keep in touch uh, with uh, myself and Colby, you can find us online at engineersvanlife.com or on Instagram at engineersvanlife. Kayla and her vernagerie, thank you, can be found at Collies Without Borders on Instagram and YouTube or writing at journeydogtraining.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Ciao, everyone.